Welcome back to 2018. Say it again. Welcome I'll... back to 2018. Say it again when I'm not saying anything. <laughs> Welcome back to 2018. Yay. This is entirely spontaneous and not at all a rehash because we had a recording mishap. What did you get up to this Christmas? What did you achieve? I caught two kinds of flu and gained a lot of weight. Was that planned? <laughs> no. Who plans to catch the flu twice? It's quite an achievement. It's, it's like you planned it. Are you proud of yourself? I'm not. <laughs> always proud of myself. I'm, I'm always proud of myself. No, I'm not proud of myself, Ting. That's nonsense. Yeah, I fell to sleep. I come back. I still have shocking jet lag. I managed to... I managed to make my jet lag even worse. I, I actually... I arrived on a weekday and went to work. And then the weekend came around and I managed to sleep like one hour at night. And then felt really tired on the Saturday. So just like lay down for a moment and then woke up and it was 8pm. Great. So I slept the entire day. And then as a result, I couldn't sleep. So I slept like one hour, you know, Saturday to Sunday night. And then Sunday just felt really tired. So like lay down for a moment. Oh, it's 8pm. Oh, great. I slept the entirety of Sunday. <laughs> then had to struggle into work. I, I managed to actually not sleep at all on Tuesday, like literally Fitbit detected zero hours sleep. So, uh, yeah, I've got shocking jet lag. That's an achievement too, right? And you're not eating. And I'm not eating. <laughs> you said you're not eating, but what did I do? On Friday, I came into the office. I bought myself a club sandwich and had a coffee. And then we went for a buffet lunch and I had a whole Chinese meal and a whole Western meal. Then I went out for dinner and then had ice cream and then I went to the pub and then we woke up and met up today and then ate a little Mexican food. <laughs> so I'm not sure how that qualifies as not eating. Well, you, your desire is not to eat so much. To try and get rid of this holiday yeah. weight. But clearly it's not working. I've decided that I'm going to try and wrap around the other way. That's how it works, right? I have no idea what you're saying. <laughs> okay, it's because it's not how it works at all. <laughs> You need to get yourself some of that raw water. Oh, gee, please, please no. <laughs> so I should have got you instead. You should have got me some raw water. You'd actually just go, you just find a nice puddle outside and scoop it into a bottle and be like, I got you raw water. Happy birthday. So you, you, you will never accept any raw water. I can't get you any. I thought this raw water thing was a joke the first time I read about it. I was like, are you serious? Do you like cholera? This is how you get cholera. It's really funny because you don't appreciate things when you've had them your whole life. It's like how people who were born rich don't realise what it is to be rich and just, you know, squander their money and because they, they never had to suffer to, like, earn their money. And then, like, people who've always been healthy just take, take their health for granted. So, like, people in first world countries who've always had, like, clean running tap water don't appreciate the fact that you shouldn't just drink water out the ground because you might die. You know, there's a reason it goes through all this purification and stuff. And they're like, oh, no, it's got fluoride in it. The government's trying to take over our minds. You know who's trying to take over your minds? Facebook's trying to take over your minds. Sorry, rant has just turned up to 11. Anyway, yeah, raw water's bullshit. It's like vaccines are a bad idea. <laughs> I wonder if I can be vaccinated against raw water. I thought it was supposed to be a gaming podcast here. I thought we are trying to... 
I'm not a fan of raw water. They don't sell it in Hong Kong though. Yet. Yet. We can become the the <laughs> Which is exclusive going- distributor of raw water in Hong Kong. <laughs> yeah, we just go and um get some water out of that reservoir for the monkey poop. The rawest water oh, I can't say the it. The rawest water. Are we done? Done about water? Yeah, yeah. I want to talk to you about Lana Del Rey and Radiohead. And you need to listen to her track. Okay. Yeah, this already feels like creep. <laughs> but I'm a creep. Oh no, it's gone the other way. kind of feels like creep but it's not a straight up coffee of creep it just has a similar chord progression i mean my, my initial reaction was yeah this sounds like creep but now i've listened to a bit more of it and i think uh, it's not obvious but the, the intro is the most important part of the song i mean i think <laughs> what grounds are they suing them over anyway i mean you know you can't Oh dear, this is going to be political again. This is going to be political. It's going to be as bad as Raw Water times a million. I just need to know, do you think it's similar? That's it. It's kind of similar. Yes, it's kind of similar. Do you believe in copyright? Yes. Do you think copyright's entirely too long? How old is Creep? 90s. 90s? So it's like more than 20 years old? Yes. I mean, I think that's too old. I think it should be like that. I mean, it's like a cover. At worst, and it's not a cover song. It doesn't. It covers just borrows... you have to pay for. <sighs> oh, you're not a fan of this. You want to be able to copy stuff. Mash up, mash up all the things. Definitely mash up all the things. It's fine. I think. I think whatever. Fine. Yeah. It made me think of creep, but I actually don't think that's too bad. I think it's acceptable. I think suing for that is ludicrous. Okay, you wouldn't be offended if someone did that to your song. Well. I haven't written any songs, so perhaps I don't have the correct viewpoint to really comment on this. Never have I seen you been so diplomatic. It's a touchy subject, man. You've disappointed me. You've disappointed me. Well, you know. <laughs> yeah, but I, on the whole, would think that suing someone for that is ridiculous. There are so many things that sound kind of the same. It's okay, like. Okay, let's play a game called the pre-chat's going to be half an hour long and we're not actually going to get to the episode at this rate. (laughs) I make a delicious cake and I have a recipe for this cake. You make another delicious cake that's basically the same as mine, but you've put some extra chocolate in it. Can I sue you because your recipe is too similar to mine? No. Okay, I've made a delightful jacket and... You see my jacket and make basically exactly the same jacket, but in red, because you like red. 
can I sue you because you ripped off my clothing design? What if I made a game that's very much like yours? Yeah, I know, but I'm giving these two examples because I know these are things that are not protected by copyright, <laughs> whereas a game is. But yeah, exactly. Look, I made an amazing battle royale kind of game and some other chumps made another one called Fortnite. Can I sue them? No. You just send nasty letters to it. I just send snarky letters. Snark, 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 snark. Welcome to Lost Levels Club. Welcome to Lost Levels Club. I have with me Sir Michael. Hello. And myself. Tingathy. We're a book club for games. And today we are... Yes, we are. So today we're covering um, Torment, Tides of Numenara. How should we start? We should start about the... There's some history. There's some history to Torment. Especially on your side. So, Torment, Tides of Numenara. It is a spiritual successor to Planescape Torment, which was a beloved Infinity Engine game in the same kind of vein as Baldur's Gate 2. But leaning much more heavily on characterization and story than combat. Which is not to say that Boys Kate 2 isn't all about characterization and story, but Torment was Torment was a game that you could essentially finish without fighting at all. And Torment Tizer Numenara is a spiritual successor to that. So it was crowdfunded on Kickstarter and managed to meet its funding target within six hours of going live. At the time, it was the most highly funded Kickstarter game, closing out at $4 million. Though this was all the way back in 2013. And you backed this game? I backed this game, yeah, maybe not within the original six hours, but I backed it very soon after it went live. And the release date at the time was suggested to be December 2014. What tier does Sir Michael go in at? Usually just the most basic one, to be honest. I mean, th- I mean, there's a whole other story here about funding things on Kickstarter, but I pretty much don't fund things on Kickstarter anymore because I realised I never play them. <laughs> but usually I would just go in for the most basic tier. It's rare that I'm going to be like, oh, I want the digital art book and I want to be able to participate in the back of forums and the alpha because you know given that i basically don't play the finished game i'm unlikely to have time to go and play the unfinished game there are plenty of kickstarter games that i have completely not played despite backing like is it shroud of the avatar the ultima spiritual successor i backed that i've never signed into the backer forum i've never downloaded any of the builds in fact I have no idea even how to play it. I assume somewhere there's going to be some email that says, oh, this is your login and this is how you play the game. I've never played it. I just randomly get updates every now and then. And I'm like, oh, they're still making that. Anyway, regardless, there was much hype around this game. It was covered extensively in the game's media at the time. Everyone loved Planescape Torment. It's in many top 100 games of all time lists. And... This game, obviously, was trying to hit many of the same notes. 
deep character development, choose your own story, unusual setting and solutions to problems. And then all the stretch goals, which were kind of expanding the original proposal they had with all these different fathoms after you die and so on. I mean, did it meet all those goals? I'm not sure. I think we probably have to play to the end of the game to find out. And so when it comes to the setting and the story, I mean, some very direct parallels would be a functionally immortal main character. So in Planescape Torment, you had the nameless one, some blank slate character that cannot die. In Tides of Numenara, you are the last cast off, an essentially immortal character that is again a blank slate. You've awoken in this body and you have to make your life you know who are you you've got to discover that for yourself and then the actual world that you're exploring planescape torment the city of sigil this crazy confluence of the plains and then tizen numenara the ninth world which is earth a billion years in the future and constructed on top of the wreckage of eight prior civilizations probably many more than eight for some reason they've just arbitrarily picked eight out to reference but really just built on top of this junk heap of all of these great civilizations prior and you're just digging up weird technology that's indistinguishable from magic and when it comes to deciding who you are rather than following the D&D good evil lawful chaotic system Numenara follows a system called the Tides. So there are different coloured tides that represent different aspects of personality and your actions will raise one or more of those tides by different amounts and that influences essentially who you are. Are you charitable? Are you calculating? Do you seek fame? Do you seek experience? Etc. The other funny thing I didn't realise until I actually played the game and started doing the research for the show notes, Numenara is actually a pen and paper game just like Dungeons and Dragons. So they didn't invent this whole setting and I assume game mechanic system for this game. There is actually a pen and paper game of Numenara as well. Though I couldn't actually really find much information on how Numenara, the pen and paper version, is played. Because if you just Google Numenara, pretty much all the information you find is for this game. I, I think Numenara itself is actually also relatively new. It, it itself was kickstarted. So, make of that what you will. So how does the game actually play? Plays like a CRPG. Except, except, you know, with exceptions. (laughs) Except with exceptions. (laughs) I hadn't really thought about it before, but... Unlike Dungeons & Dragons, you don't have 
fixed stats like strength, intelligence, wisdom, charisma, and so on, and then roll a bunch of dice to decide if something's going to succeed or fail. Yes. The key system in Numenara seems to be effort. So there are three pools of points. Might. Yes. Speed. Yes. And intelligence. Intellect. Intellect. Fine. And then for each of those pools, you can also have edge. So if you have a point of edge, it's like spending a free point in that stat. Well, that's a bit unclear. To give a better example, how do you use these pools of points? When you make your character and when you level up, you can decide how many points, how many maximum points you can have in each pool. So you might have, say, six strength, six speed and ten intellect if you are a magic user kind of character. Or if you want to be a heavy hitter, you might do ten strength six speed, six intellect, or maybe if you want to be a very fast rogue type character, ten speed might be a better place to put your points. Whenever you actually perform an action that draws upon this kind of talent, you actually spend points from that pool. So even though you might have a maximum of ten speed, you can spend two points, and now you've only got eight points of speed left. Spending more points means you're more likely to accomplish that action. And then edge, which I mentioned previously, is essentially whenever you need to conduct an action that would expend points from that pool, you get a free point spent. (laughs) Is that still unclear? Free point to spend, yes. It's kind of like like if you had two points of edge in speed, then whenever you need to conduct a speed check, even if you spent no points from your pool... It would be as if you had spent two points. <laughs> is that still unclear? No, it makes sense. Yeah. But the thing is, you can spend 5.6 points, but you may not hit 100%. You've got to bear that in mind. Yeah, one of your level up traits for your character is how many points you can spend at once. So at the start of the game, you can expend at most two points of effort at a time. And then as the game goes on, you can spend three points or four points or so on. Listening to the explanation, it sounds complicated and satisfying (laughs) but it's like but in the actual game it's really simple and unsatisfying is that what you're gonna say exactly that (laughs) really i didn't think it was that bad is now the time to talk about it yeah let's talk let's talk about it the point is for me i just want 80 percent success rate i don't know why my human brain aims for that or targets that but it does so there's no skill or strategy required to sort of uh, decide oh this is an important interaction and that and another one is less important and you don't try to divvy up your effort like that okay this is clearly a weakness on your part because i totally do play like that (laughs) i am totally of the opinion it's like oh this one's not important spend one point 40 percent success oh i succeeded great or i failed okay fine who cares or this one's important burn all of my points i want to make sure it's as high as possible and you can also use your party members a lot of the time so you might have a strength check and it's like well this guy in my party is strong so he'll 
spend his points instead. And because your character actually can have particular skills like smashing or quick fingers or whatever, which also give you a bonus to that kind of check. So sometimes it's worth picking someone in your party if they've got that particular skill that benefits it as well. But I did think about, is this an important one to pass or is this less important? And sometimes actually failing the check still gives you an interesting outcome and you should just go with it. Though other times it's like, oh, you failed the check. Well, you can try again if you spend an extra point because the game is written in such a way that you kind of have to succeed this one, which was a bit of a cop out. They try and indicate right at the beginning of the game that it's interesting and there's all these other things. Sometimes there's not. I guess that's just the limitations of how much time they had to write the game. Interesting observation. I didn't realise the, the retry ones are ones you're meant to pass. Makes a lot of sense though. Yeah, I think it's ones where they didn't have time to write an alternate path, so they just made you retry it. Particularly when it comes to the memory stuff, like, is it anamnesis, amamnesis, whatever where you are remembering the memories of your body, but that, you know, when it wasn't you inhabiting your body, uh, which is like a whole story thing we'll get to. But those checks, I think, you kind of... Well, you don't have to pass them, but there's no alternate path for not remembering, really. You can always just try them again, I think, with extra cost. The, The other funny consequences, I guess, of the effort system are that It makes all your characters feel like magic users. If you think about Baldur's Gate or Planescape Torment, if you're playing a fighter character, you've just got high strength and you win fights by smacking things in the face. And although when you start to play like very high level characters and say Baldur's Gate 2 and stuff, you get funny abilities and they do get recharged and rest and stuff, but your primary ability comes from just you know, whacking stuff. And so you're pretty much as good fresh out of bed as you are after, you know, slaying kobolds of 16 hours. Whereas magic user, you wake up, you're full of beans and fireballs. And then after, you know, a hard day's incinerating, all you've got left are like some fanciful color sprays and your trusty sling. I don't know. In this game, because everyone's just spending points all the time, after you've been awake for a while, you kind of have no points left. So even if you're a fighter, you're like, well, I've got no points of punching effort left. So I'm also kind of crap. And you suffer from the XCOM kind of problem of like 95% chance to hit. Great. Oh, I missed anyway. And then it's like, what is this? 95% chance should be 100% chance. I, I know it doesn't work like that, but that's still how it feels. So let's talk about sleeping and rest. I actually did think this was a very clever bit of game design. Although, despite it being very clever, that doesn't mean it has to be fun. But how fun you find it, obviously, is a matter of interpretation. So, well, what happens when you sleep, Ting? All your pools uh, refill. But what also happens when you sleep, Ting? Quests move on. The world moves on, just like the real real life. Yeah, I thought this was really clever and unexpected. I mean, I definitely did not expect it the first time. So I had been wandering around the Sagas Cliffs and then I had a task to investigate a murder. Fine. But 
given this is a CRPG, I was just like, la la la, I'll go and do some other quests first. And then I burned up a lot of my effort points. And then I thought, well, let's recharge my effort pools. Let's go to sleep. Wake up the next day. Character ends up, there's been another murder. What do you mean there's been another murder? And, you know, a character that I'd interacted with earlier had just been killed. And I was like, what? This wasn't part of the deal. So after that, I was like, I guess I can't just sleep whenever I feel like it. Which is actually quite a bit more realistic. It also removes the main exploit that would let you get around the effort system. Because I think when we talked about Baldur's Gate 2, you told me that you just slept every five minutes. Like, you'd be like, oh, it's a fight. There's one kobold, fireball, and then go to bed and wake up. And, oh, there's another fight, one kobold, fireball, and go to bed and wake up. You can't do that in this game. Well, you can do, but you'll miss out on quests because they'll advance themselves into oblivion. So you're right. It's I agree. It's clever. Moving the story on, regardless, is a good idea. I I think it's a case of my playstyle doesn't really gel mesh. Yes, with the game mechanics, but I can definitely appreciate it after hearing your experience and the fact that you can't die in principle means you're right sometimes you should expend less effort I want to succeed all the time I want to talk about conversations go on then I don't like them (laughs) what? I don't like them you're expected to just hit every conversation you know dialogue option get 2 XP 4 XP and then move move on and then you, everything is like, blah, 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 again. Should you want to blah, 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 again? You know, and that's your prompt to say, oh, you've really exhausted this one, move on. It's a template they they use throughout the game for all dialogue. Oh, please remind me, blah, blah. You know, that's a template. I actually quite like this. I think it's really funny. I was, I was perfectly okay with this. I mean, how how else do you think it should be done? You asked the right question. It's probably the only way for it to be done but it's it's quite jarring you know compare this to Baldur's Gate this never happens I never felt this while playing Baldur's Gate 2 I suppose it is just formalising the system that was in place in Baldur's Gate 2 but maybe you're right and it's a weakness of the writing I suppose they could have achieved the same thing in a more natural way? Or what else would they have done? Just not giving you the option to ask about things again and you just had to remember. Or you'd have it in the transcript, which you could return to. Scroll up in the console window. Yeah, but I guess, you know, if you're coming back to an area after like a day or two, it's not going to be in there. A a day or two, I mean in real life, you know, because you haven't been able to play the game and you came back. I mean, it does feel like a, it's just a design decision. It's, it is an interesting problem. Because there is no obvious alternative. And expanding on that, at times you're running between people, talking to people, and just offloading items, and it feels very much like a point-and-click adventure. Yeah, I thought there was a really interesting insight, because this had not occurred to me at all until you said it. But you are right. If you were to actually take the perspective of the game and make it side on and pixel art 
the game would actually function perfectly well as a point-and-click game. The combat is very much secondary. It's not like Baldur's Gate or even Place Game Torment, where the combat is kind of organically built into the experience. In those games, there are areas that are just dangerous and contain enemies, and you can go to them and you can have fights with enemies, or there are even random encounters. So combat will just sometimes happen as you move from place to place. In this game, the combat occurs at very specific scripted moments of the game, and the combat itself plays out like a puzzle, almost. It's turn-based. You have very fixed kind of consumables or your effort pools and so on. It probably made the game easier to design and turn around in a short time, but yes, you could probably recast the entire game as a point-and-click adventure and it would still work. I mean, maybe we're being unfair, maybe the game changes quite a lot in feel once you leave the Sagas Cliffs, but certainly from what I've seen so far, I agree. You could make a point-and-click game with the exact same game just by changing the art style and interface. And then a final weird nitpick from me on the UI. As someone who's played Baldur's Gate and plays Game Torment and all these other games, when you right-click on an item, it pops up a kind of modal window that gives you an additional description about the item. And there's a big button at the bottom. And I've got to admit, I never even read the button. I just assumed the button would close the window. But it doesn't. The button does something. So the first time I noticed this was I was in a shop and I was thinking, oh, should I sell this item or not? And I right-clicked on an item to see what the item was. And then I just clicked the bottom of the window to close the window and it sold the item. And I was like, wait, what? Because the button at the bottom of the window is sell item when you're in a shop or buy item, depending on whether, you know, it's your item or their item, or indeed discard item when it's in your inventory. Why would you do this? Why would you make that the default? The only way to close the window without doing the action is to click on the tiny X in the top corner. It's really tiny. It's really tiny. I don't understand this. I literally don't understand why you would design your UI this way. But I guess it made sense to whoever did it. Anyway... Moving on. Your mind wakes in darkness. Aching cold sets into an unfamiliar body. A distant howling surrounds you, louder with each passing second. Insistent and invisible hands slap and tear at the membrane that protects you. So we can talk about the game itself, really. We should make a start. Yeah, since all we've done is talk about the mechanics of the game. So... How is the actual game, game, the story, how we played it? What was your character? Well, let's start off. How, how does it all begin, right? Oh, how does it begin? Oh, with a wall of text. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You wake up to a black screen and a whole bunch of conversation options. You are falling from orbit in a cocoon. Yes. You pick some dialogue choices and then you hit the ground. I think it's actually possible to die. I was going to say that, yes. I just inferred this from the achievements. I haven't actually done it. Have you? No, I've not died. Because although you're essentially immortal, you're not actually immortal. If, if enough damage is done to you 
in one go you can actually die so i i think it's possible if you just face plant straight into the ground from orbit you will die but certainly the normal flow of the game is you just become horribly horribly injured and awaken in this strange landscape made of tiny hexagons or something with a big bolt move and have to essentially design your character so it sort of tries to ease you in by asking you questions about who you want to be Oh, but these questions are really obtuse. Yes. There's a bit where there's like three doppelgangers that are doing things. And I was just like, what does this represent? Is this who I want to be? I was thinking, um, Mike probably is probably really enjoying this. Um, This is so foreign to me. I have no idea what's going on. Yeah, I was just like, can I have a menu, please, and descriptions? It does actually give you a menu at the end. Like you make your choices. And then as you walk out, it's like, Here's a menu. You can just pick what you actually want now. I don't. I don't remember what happens. You get your option to choose what you really want, and then, and then the sorrow shows up, and then you wake up, jumping through a portal. Correct. And then you have an interesting story about rolling your character, and then being like, "Uh, too hard. Let's start again." Yeah, because when you coat out into the first map, which is the Reef of Fallen Worlds. Reef of Fallen Worlds. You take on one guy. You have your first, very first encounter with Koro. Yes. You fought him. Successfully. Well, actually, hey, what happens if you fight him successfully, actually? You tell me that now. You win and you just walk into the city? Well, actually, oh. you don't just walk into the city. After you win, Alagon and Calistige have a big shouting match about who betrayed who... Or did one of them try and stitch up the other one or something? And then you have to pick one or the other to go with. And the other one will just storm off in a huff. But you're left free to roam the map. Yes. So I surrendered to Koro, got knocked out, got sent to the Order of Truth with Calistige. And I was told to take a look at, I cannot say this. The Anachoic Lazarette. Yes. That's my first mission. So I thought, okay, that's my first mission. Let's go. And I went straight there, got obliterated, got destroyed, got destroyed so quickly. It was so painful. And I was a nano, I saw that Calistige was a nano, and I thought, come on, a nano's just a wizard, right? Just a mage. Yes. I thought I'd made a mistake. It was too painful. So I re-rolled. So you re-rolled as a jack? Yes. I need more flexibility. Jack being the kind of jack of all trades rogue type character and then you just did the same thing again no i didn't i realized i didn't have to go into that anechoic lazarette and take on the peerless i didn't need to do it so early but you still surrendered the first fight and went with calistage yes i have no idea if i'm saying her name correctly i'm saying it the same way you you are good let's just agree that's how it's said correctly okay and then my character i went with a nano and just stuck with it and won that first fight. But as I said, you have to choose between Alagurn and Calistige. So Alagurn is, he's also from the Order of Truth, isn't he? He's kind of one of their Aeon priests. He's out in the world looking for Numenara. Whereas Calistige is kind of like a scholar. Is that right? I don't, you didn't really cross paths with the other guy. Yeah. Anyway, well, he is, a kind of melee type character 
with strength and he has like tattoos that he can peel off and i don't know i also didn't go with him i picked calistage because she just seemed way cooler because she's kind of in this strange quantum superposition of different possibilities at some point in the past she made a machine or used a machine that kind of put her into a state of flux with all her other alternate possible selves in other possible universes and she can communicate with her other selves and then some of her other selves are trying to kill her like trying to end her whole possibility space and i don't know she just seemed like a much more interesting character so i just went with her but she is also a nano so i have yeah in my initial party i had two nanos but it was fine there's not much combat anyway and you can game it just by nuking everyone with all your effort i thought given my first attempt i thought it'll be many dungeons actually yeah i mean you could be forgiven for thinking that because that is how these games often are <laughs> but there's very little combat well then so should we just summarize the story very quickly and then let's touch upon the points of it we thought were interesting so an extremely high level summary would be obviously you fall from orbit in this cocoon you wake up in this dome next to this machine which is the resonance chamber you are a cast off of the changing god the changing god being some kind of immortal who changes body every 10 to 20 years and whenever he casts off one of his old bodies a new consciousness is born in that body instead i'm saying he i mean the bodies can be female too so whenever they cast off one of their old bodies or however the correct gender neutral pronoun would be a new consciousness is born in that body you are the last cast off Last could mean the last one, or last could just mean the most recent one. I don't know. Take that as you will. And both the Changing God and all of the cast-offs are being hunted by some entity called the Sorrow. I don't really know what the Sorrow is yet, but it will kill you. Like, super, super kill you, given that you're practically immortal. But one of the few things that can kill you is the Sorrow. And somehow the resonance chamber, which is the device that you broke by falling onto it from orbit, that allegedly can stop the sorrow. So you have to repair the resonance chamber. And the entire quest line in the Sagas Cliffs is to find someone who can repair the resonance chamber. And what that actually functionally boils down to is recruit a load of party members and then in particular find another cast off called Makina who then says, oh, we need to go to this other place, the Valley of Dead Heroes, or Meal Avest, which is where we'll go next to find someone who can repair the resonance chamber. So that's an overview of this chunk of the story. And then all of the characters you can recruit in the game are actually recruited here in this first section of the game, the Sagas Cliffs. So we've already mentioned Alagon and Callistage, of which you can only pick one or the other. And then there are a bunch more. Who did you come across first? I came across Tibia. Yeah, Tibia. Tibia is probably the easiest one to come across first because as you leave the Reef of Fallen Worlds, you enter, what's it called? The Circus? 
Circus Minor. And pretty much the first thing you see when you enter Circus Minor is the execution of Reese. So this is another one of those weird, weird setting. Ooh, it's so strange. Uh, emotions being made real and manifested in, you know, this guy Reese is being executed by this entity called the Death of Reese, which is a construct made of his fears. And it's like kind of, he's being forced into a perpetual nightmare, which is making like this rope spew out of his mouth and then they're like tying it around his neck. It's all very spooky. Yeah, that sounded particularly grisly. A lot of these vignettes dotted around the world and this was one that made me smile. The storytelling is actually quite good. There's a, some of it's a lot of it's unnecessary, but some of it's very good. I think this is also an example where if you sleep enough, you'll get executed. Yes. And Tibia, Tibia, I mean, I've been saying Tibia, is watching the execution and you can recruit him into your party and his kind of character quest is to prevent Reese's execution because him and Reese were partners in crime. But it's not actually being done out of the goodness of his heart. It's actually because there's a guy standing behind Reese watching the execution called Devourer of Wrongs. And Devourer of Wrongs is a Dendra O'Hur, which is a cult of people who eat people. And when they eat them, they can absorb their memories. So Devourer of Wrongs is there to eat Reese's body after he is executed and from his memories find out who his co-conspirators were which is obviously going to be Tibia. So he has to prevent the execution to stop himself being implicated in the treason of the Saga's Cliffs because they were trying to smuggle information out. Did you recruit him? Yes. And I completed his quest. Job done. I don't know. Did you find him an interesting character? Did you recruit him? Yes, I did. And you completed the quest? Yes, I did. And is he still in your party? No, he's not. Yeah, I ditched him too. Let's move on. We can come back to him. (laughs) Or the characters. He's a scoundrel and a con man. Who did you come across next? I actually came across Oom, who you didn't come across at all. I think Oom is most interesting because it was introduced in the 1.1 patch. So Oom was not a character that existed in the original version of the game. So when you find the Changing Gods laboratory underneath the Sagas Cliffs, I think it's called like the Crossroads of Fate or something, there's a bunch of mirrors that you can use to look at yourself and also message your stats. And in one of the mirrors is actually Oom. How did you get down there? Oh, this is the whole quest to do with the Stickus. Stikus. Sticker. This is the problem with weird made-up names. How do you pronounce any of them? The weird insectoids that burrow through stuff. This is your world. Your your world is full of weird made-up names. Yeah, like Ting. What kind of name is that? So you recruited Oom. I recruited Oom, yeah. And I was using Oom. So for the first chunk of the game, I was using Tibia, Oom, and Calistage. Does he speak your language? 
No, Um is all weird metaphor and strange symbolism. So he does speak your language just weirdly. No, he's kind of just projecting images into your mind or changing colour and making strange sounds. In fact, I think all Um does is change colour and make strange sounds, but because I have the... I actually have a perk about reading minds. And so if you've got the read thoughts perk, then you can also just see these images as well. But it will be something like a swirl of leaves and a sunset or something. You'd be like, hmm, okay, what does that mean? So Um is quite a strange cryptic character. Uh, but the, the benefit of having Um in your party is that it allows you to see the impact on your tides. It will show you taking this conversation option will raise the blue tide or choosing this one will raise the red tide, for example. So I guess it would let you tailor your character more easily if you were aiming for a particular tide. And Oom's shape and combat abilities are actually influenced by your dominant tide. So if your dominant, whatever your dominant tide is at the moment, you can change Oom to be that colour. And the different colours each have a different particular ability. It's like the gold one boosts healing or like the blue one boosts intelligence based combat skills. Or something like that. Okay. So you, you didn't bother with Makina? I recruited everyone. Well, you've got to recruit Makina anyway. So she's part of the main quest. You have to recruit her for the cold calculating Jack. Okay. Actually, I don't know if you have to recruit her, but you certainly have to find her. Yes. So I recruited her. I don't know if you had to or needed to or did. I did. I mean, again, mechanics... I knew I was about to encounter her. So this is actually when I kind of turned over my whole party. So up to that point, I'd had Kalsij, Tibur, Um, but then I knew Makina was coming up. So I actually ditched my entire party, recruited Rin, and then Eritus, and then picked up Makina and then left. You left with Makina? Yeah, so my party now is I've left Sagas Cliffs, which we'll get to later, is actually... Rin, Eritus, and Makina. Oh, you got rid of Calistige. Yeah. I mean, I can recruit them all again because I got the Bronze Sphere, which is another thing you can get in the mirrors in the crossroads. As long as you get that item, I think you can change your party whenever you want. But I thought, I'll try something different, so I've just taken a completely different set of characters on. Is now the time to talk about Rin? I mean, we can talk about her, but I don't think we know that much yet. She's, from a game mechanics perspective, an interesting character in that she appears to be useless. She has very low strength that you can't improve. She talks to a rock all the time, who she says is her god, Arl. And she's good at hiding, but she has terrible combat abilities. I can only assume that if you level her up enough, she suddenly becomes amazing as your reward for, you know, looking after her. But at this point in the game, she's kind of lame, mechanically. Story-wise, she does fulfill an important function because when you return her to the slaver woman, because she's like an escaped slave, you actually learn an important skill, like tidal surge. Do you get that? Yes. I've not yet used it. Have I? I don't think I've used it either. But it's essentially a skill that gives you new conversation options. So if you fail 
like persuasion or something, you can use this title search to give you a free success, I think. In universe lore, the title search is the ability of cast-offs to manipulate the tides in themselves and others. Since we've talked about all of them, except for Eretis, I don't want to leave out Eretis, because it's actually quite a funny character. What, is, what on earth is going on with Eretis? Like, what is the deal with Eretis? Like, I ran into a lot of these characters by accident, so I just saw Eretis, and I clicked on him because I thought it was an NPC, and I'd get a quest out of him or something. You talk to him, and you suddenly get, you know, this spoken dialogue, so you realise, oh, he must be a playable character, I must be able to recruit him. But he's completely mad. I don't know whether we're ever going to get an explanation for why he's like this, or if it's kind of just like a tongue-in-cheek. This is just something that exists in the universe. Like He is a comical, overblown stereotype of the hero. And he's like, yeah, let's do heroic things. This is boring. Let's burn something down. And if you have the mind-reading perk, his internal thoughts are just nuts. They're just like someone screaming heroic catchphrases constantly. The first time you come across him, he's crashed a ship into the side of the cliff. And he's thought that was the best way to get over here because he saw a falling star. That was his whole reason for being there. And if you read the description, it actually mentions that it's practically impossible to crash an airship. You must have tried really hard to crash an airship. They're normally pretty much uncrashable. So, you know, he's something special if he's able to crash an airship. And he's hideously positive about everything. And everything is possible. And he's got this golden aura glowing around him all the time as well. I mean, when you're talking to him, you're like, what's with the golden aura? He's like, what aura? He's like, no, really, what's with the golden aura? He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I can't tell if he's going to be an interesting character or if he is actually completely vacuous and just there for comedy. That would be enough for me. Fair enough. So we can start talking about Saga's Cliffs and the areas that make it up, or at least the interesting areas. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole load of quests in Saga's Cliffs. There's only, I think, a couple on the critical path. Like, I think if you wanted to get out of the Saga's Cliffs really quickly, there's actually not very much you have to do. You basically have to recruit Makina and leave on an airship. And to recruit Makina, you need to have some way of digging to her hideout. Which means you need to either get the help of the Stickus or build the robot Stickus. Which is one of the major decision points in the game where there's like two ways to solve this problem. You can either diffuse the conflict between the humans and the Stickus. Or you can steal the eggs of the Stickus and kind of blackmail them into doing what you want. What did you do? I was helpful because I'm a nice person. I think this is how I ended up going from dominant blue tide to dominant blue and gold, where gold is like compassion and empathy and charity and something. And your character is dominant gold tide, isn't Obviously. Because you're Ting, the friendly ghost. Yeah, so I talked to Chaket, the Stickus, and I recovered the memory of how to speak the Stickus language 
And then from there negotiated to say, you know, please dig deeper because you're collapsing buildings and there will be war between the humans and the stickers. And they were like, yeah, okay, fine, we'll dig deeper. And then as a result, because you're all friends after that, or at least not enemies, and they've moved their eggs, he'll just take you to their lair because it's empty now. And then from there, you can just walk to the changing god sanctuary, which is where you are actually trying to get. And that's where Makina is. No, Makina is somewhere else. Makina is on the something of despair, path of despair or something. The bit on Cliff's Edge where everyone goes to jump off to commit suicide when they're sad. Okay. Irrelevant. It doesn't really matter. It's another place you have to get to by digging once you realise. So, okay, fine. So the actual plot, if we're going to go into all this detail, is you need to find Makina... To find Makina, you need to talk to a guy called Mapper. Mapper knows where Makina is, but won't tell you until you complete his map of Saga's Cliffs for him. And the only place he's not been able to get to is the Changing God Sanctuary, which is this crossroads of fate, because he can't get there because it needs the help of the stickers to dig there. So after you sort things out, the stickers and have been to the crossroads, you go back and talk to him because one of his weird mutation Numenara things is that, you know, his map is on his body and he knows it. He'll then complete his map and be happy to tell you that Makina is in this path of sorrow or despair or something. And then you can then talk to Stickus or use the robot to then dig to there. And then you can talk to her. And then she tells you you've got to go to Mila Vest, which means you've got to go to the Valley of Dead Heroes, which means you've got to get an airship, blah, blah, blah. That's the end. But the most important thing is you come across your first... Mia Caster? Yes. You really wanted to talk about this. Really? Tell me what happened here. What do you think? Do you think this was the intention of what a... Basically, it's a choose-your-own-adventure text with some use of your, I don't know, skill pools? Yeah, it's like they had written out, oh, we're going to have this cool fight between these two factions and you've got to follow this quest line. And then they were like, oh, we ran out of money or time. Uh, let's just do it as a choose your own adventure. Because if you think about it, mechanically, well, mechanically, it's completely different. It's choose your own adventure. But in terms of story and setting and using your skill pools, it's actually kind of like the main game. It's again, if you took the main game and took out all the walking and just made it a bunch of text that you read it would actually kind of be the same game. I mean, you could say this about a lot of games, obviously, I'm being unfair. But yeah, explicitly, you go into this caster, which is a way of looking into the memories of of a cast-off. So they say that all cast-offs when they're born, or born when they come into being, when they wake up in one of the Changing Gods like cast-off bodies, a caster also comes into being that can look into their memories. And... This Mirkaster belongs to... Well, this is the Mirkaster of another cast-off whose name I've forgotten. Jax? Jack? I don't know. And Makina wants to use it to find out what happened to this flute. This magical flute because of these hill people. And this is all a level of story which is kind of unnecessary for me to recount. Yes, it is unnecessary for you to recount. The main thing is the story is told in a choose-your-own-adventure way. She also cautions you that when you're choosing your own adventure, don't choose an adventure that's too different from reality. Because it will just... Well, it's really unclear what will happen. 
actually. I mean, I picked something that seemed to kind of fit the past as it must have happened. But I don't know what would have happened if I picked something that was completely different. Because it seems you did rewrite the past when you used this, which is kind of odd. What did you really want to say about it? You just thought it was a cop-out? It's a cop-out, yes, exactly. Ting is not satisfied by the storytelling mechanic. Were you satisfied by the storytelling mechanic? Yeah, I thought it was all right. I am really curious whether they originally intended it to be like this, or whether they thought that, you know, you'll use the Mircaster and then, ooh, map change, and then you appear in the past on this hill, negotiating with this hill tribe, and then you've got to go into this dungeon and follow this spiral to find the flute, and there's traps to disarm and stuff, and it could play out just like the rest of the game. But as I said, maybe they ran out of money or time and it was like, okay, fine, let's make it choose your own adventure. Like, an interesting way of designing the game might have been to make the entire game a choose-your-own-adventure and then flesh it out as they had time on the, you know, from most important to least important bit. True. Or it might just have been that the Mircasters were kind of like a stretch goal because did it need to exist at all? You could have just met Makina and then, well, no, this is some valuable backstory, I guess, for her. And then maybe you can change because you're kind of changing the past. I don't know. It's a strange mechanic. I mean, this is the only one of these I've found so far, so maybe there'll be more and this will become a bigger thing as we go through. On Cliff's Edge, did you come across this character who was, who was just... I don't know what what he was doing. Is he a martial artist? I have no idea. Yes, he's a martial artist. This is... I, I thought it was quite funny because, like an anime character, he's calling out his attacks. This is one of those things where, until it's pointed out to you... It doesn't seem weird, but once it's pointed out to you, it seems crazy. So, if you've ever watched anime, I, I, you've, have you ever watched anime? Like Dragon Ball or Naruto or like any of these things. In shonen anime anyway. So there's all these like fight scenes where characters are fighting. And then, you know, they'll be using their special attack and they'll shout out the name of the attack. They'll be like, Kamehameha or like, you know, Kuchiyo Senior Jutsu or something like, wait, why would you do that? Why would you tell your enemy? I'm about to punch you in the face. And then, you know, why would you do that? But that's what characters in anime do. And that's what this guy does as well. He shouts, you know, like Raptor Claw or like Bear Vice or something. He's like shouting out like animal names and attack things. And Mike's doing the gestures for them as well. Yeah, you obviously can't see this is waste on you, but I'm actually like putting like my hands in strange positions. Raptor Claw. Raptor Claw, yeah. Raptor Claw. That's not a raptor. <laughs> it's like a, that would be like a snake strike. I don't... <laughs> Good thing I'm not an anime character. Anyway. So this guy... Fights to the death. He says he always fights to the death. And he's like, learn the deadliest fighting skills from all his opponents. And the only way he can know that they've used their deadliest skill on him is if they actually fight to the death. Because then they know it's, you know, they should hold nothing back. And so you can fight him. Actually, I just realised it's not even about just he knows all the deadliest skills. He's also got the ability to bend time, doesn't he? That's what makes him so dangerous. Because he can slow down time around him. And that's why he's also really, really fast. So his particular challenge to you is, you know, that he's faster than you can be. And so he will try and He'll try and hit you and you have to block it. Not that hard, really. 
well, you just have to burn a load of speed effort, basically. So what, what was your outcome with your encounter with him? I just made sure I had loads of speed effort points ready to go and then just like used up as many as I could and won. But you can kill him as well. You can kill him, yeah. It's interesting because this is like roleplay versus min-maxing. From a roleplaying point of view, do I really want to kill him? It's not very nice. But from a min-maxing point of view, I want to kill him because if you, when you actually beat him, you get a permanent increase to your speed pool. And if you kill him, you get another permanent point of speed increase to your speed pool. But I didn't actually kill him. I was nice. And that's, again, why I got some, like, gold-tied... Did you do the same? Yeah, I did the same. How boring and predictable. Oh, I'm disappointed in myself. Yeah, maybe we should have agreed to play really different characters. I should have just been, like, a mega jerk. It would have actually been funnier. <laughs> I should have just been, like, a mega jerk who punches things. In fact, yeah, we, we were talking earlier about the character design, because the character design is actually made up of three parts in Numenara. You are an X, Y, who Zs, isn't it? That's like the the style of your character. So, as we said, I am a mystic nano who brandishes a silver tongue, because that's like your focus, which is one of the things you pick up in a quest after you solve the clock. And then you were what a clever jack who brandishes a silver tongue but yeah maybe i should have been a dumb glaive who punches things actually since i've mentioned the clock okay i think that's another interesting thing that neither of us actually did but i discovered afterwards when looking at the show notes for this episode there's actually an alternate solution to the clock so there is a clock in Circus Minor that you have to, well, it's kind of in this weird out-of-time state and you have to fix it. And it's mandatory, it's part of the main quest. And as a result of solving the clock, you release these three kind of echoes of former versions of yourself, or other cast-offs, and that's how you choose your focus. So there's Branches a Silver Tongue, Breathe Shadow, or Master's Defense, I think. Again, the specifics are unimportant. We both picked Brandish's a silver tongue. In fact, actually, if I'm going to go down another yet another tangent, I will comment that I think that focus gives you further abilities beyond just the ones you see when you pick the focus. But you actually can't tell what it's going to be. It, it doesn't tell you where this focus leads. So I don't know if this was the right choice strategically, but whatever, it seemed like the best one at the time. In any case... Rather than solving the clock, you can actually break the clock and it causes like some time paradox alternate universe thing and you end up in a version of Circus Minor at night. And I don't know what the full repercussions of that are. I think it gives you some alternate solutions to other quests. So that actually seemed quite cool, but neither of us did it. And it's not obvious that it exists either because the clock puzzle is so blindingly obvious or maybe it's just so blindingly obviously we played a lot of CRPGs that, you know, it would n- never occur to me to deliberately break the clock by doing the puzzle totally wrong. But it's quite cool that that alternate path exists. We should talk about the weaponized meme. <laughs> the words of Kra. Is that how you pronounce it? How do you pronounce a Q without a U? Kra sounds good. 
I just had to mention it. I mean, I don't, there's no other reason for it. It just seems so. It's a weaponized meme. Wow, such meme. Much devastation. If, what did you want to say about the words of Christ? You just thought it was really funny. The it was idea, just really funny. The it's, idea of a weaponized meme. Yeah, I just thought of you in, immediately. What do you mean you thought of me immediately? Because you're like, yeah, you love your memes. I do love my memes. <laughs> the funny thing for me is that as soon as I saw you know, the words of Kra and I saw the words, a weaponized meme. I was like, oh, it's like the joke from Monty Python. It's the funniest joke, which you had never heard of. Nope. And so we actually watched it. I'll put it in the show notes, but, you know, the idea of a weaponized meme is not new. Monty Python thought of it decades ago. The funniest joke, a joke that's so funny that anyone who hears it just dies laughing. And then they discover it during World War Two. So... They make a German version of the joke that the enemy troops can understand, but their troops can't. And so you just have waves of British troops just shouting out this strange German phrase and all these German soldiers just dying laughing. It's very silly. It's Monty Python. What do you expect? What did you do about the words of Kra? Did you take them on? Yeah, I did. I convinced him to kill himself. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I'm immortal. I don't want to be carrying this ticking bomb around in my head i thought i could unleash it on other people i i I think you actually can do i think you can do but i was like you know what i just rather not know well actually i kind of do want to know but i i thought from a role-playing perspective if i'm going to live forever it might be better just to not know from a role-playing perspective if i want to live forever (laughs) why are you judging me yeah i'm judging you Okay, a couple more things. Omadon, Omadon. That's the problem with this when there's no voice acting. How the hell do you say any of these names? We've had many name problems this whole podcast. And let's even start with where we which which map this is in. Caravanserai. Is that how you say that name? Even sounds good to me. I liked this short sub story. Short story. Seemed very ridiculous. Please explain. So he's looking for his... I don't know what's the right way to say it. Love interest? He's looking for this woman. He's obsessed with her. We don't know. To cut a long story short, he has revived her and he feels she should be obligated to spend the rest of her life with him or that she should be indebted to him. And you, you know, you, you have the choice of what to do with that. This is actually just the storyline of Sleeping Beauty, except that Sleeping Beauty doesn't like the prince when she wakes up. Uh, 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 I actually don't know how Sleeping Beauty goes then. Well, is it the storyline of Sleeping Beauty? Does Sleeping Beauty know the prince before she falls asleep? No. Well then, this is just the storyline of Sleeping Beauty. No, but I don't know. I, I, that doesn't sound very Disney to me. I don't know what happens in Sleeping Beauty, but that doesn't sound very Disney to me. Sleeping Beauty, pretty character, is in a sleep-like death, and everyone's mourning, and then some prince shows up and revives her, and Sleeping Beauty is like, 
oh, Prince, you're so dreamy. Let's go off and run away together. And then in this story, pretty character is in sleep like death or maybe death like death. Some dude shows up and revives her. But, you know, because he's not beach body ready. Like Shrike. Yeah. No happy ending. She's like, oh, you creep. Get away from me. And then he's just chasing after her. Oh, no, is it like that? She sounds like a terrible person. Well, he's a terrible person, too. <laughs> They're all terrible people. Everyone's a bunch of dicks. Yeah, I mean, he's kind of wrong, to be honest. And, you know, maybe she was better off dead. I don't know. It doesn't really... It doesn't You don't know much about her, do you? Do you actually meet her? What, what actually, how did you solve this? The lady at the inn, the proprietor of the inn, I used her to put him into a deep, like, um, hypnot- put him into a hypnotic state and just leave him there hanging for a bit whilst the, the girl gets to run away. That's how I left it. And did you ever meet the girl? Nope. Did you? No. I actually just had a chat with him and said, oh, she's not worth it. And he was like, yeah, okay, fine. You're right. She's probably not worth it. Or something along those lines. I just persuaded him. By expending loads of effort. (laughs) But, you know, I had high persuasion and intellect and lots of intellect edge. So I just burned up a load of points on it and it was fine. Fine. Yeah, but I never met her either. So I have no idea what she's like. I don't know if she's nice or horrible or why she was really asleep slash dead. Either way, she definitely didn't want the guy creeping after her. So, you know. Not worth it. So a couple more from The Order of Truth. I don't know if it's such a big deal that one of them is a spy, actually. One of them's a spy. I didn't follow up on this quest line at all. I kind of got the impression he was a spy, and he mentions the Memovira, Memovira, however you say that. <laughs> I did not follow up on it at all. I didn't turn him in. I didn't dig any deeper. I was just like, oh, you're a spy. All right. And one of the other characters mentions, I think we've got a spy in our midst. And I was like, yeah, yeah, you probably do. Yeah, I didn't follow up on it. Did you? No, I thought you were telling me more. No, I have nothing more to say either. <laughs> and the other one is Smurf. No, not Smurf. Snurf. I don't know. I've just ignored the apostrophe. Snurf? <laughs> How Mike said it. So this guy's just... <laughs> this guy's like a pervy alien. He's a visitant, which, as far as I can tell, is an alien. It's some some creature from another. They've come through the bloom, which seems to be this weird transdimensional portal networky alive thing. But it starts off quite sad. In his culture, you reproduce by losing your limbs. So he cut off his arms to reproduce some children. And then, while doing some scientific stuff, he accidentally gains bionic arms... And this is like a big taboo because it's like you cut off your arms, but you just put new arms on. This is forbidden. And his children disowned him and his culture disowned him. And he was exiled into the bloom or he ran into the bloom or whatever. Whatever the equivalent of the bloom is on his side of the portal. And he winds up in the Sagas Cliffs, but he's just fascinated by reproduction and has made Universal Pornhub. Uh, Yep, his life has taken a turn for the worse. And he's just... That's what he does now. He just watches porn all day and writes about it. I mean, he's made a machine that, when you push the button, just shows reproductive rituals for a creature that he doesn't know. And he just literally watches porn all day. 
Is this some commentary about, like, I don't know what they're trying to say here. He's left his kids and he's just watching porn now. For science. For, si- for science ting. Sorry, porn for science is okay. I guess so. He actually does fulfil a quest requirement. Did you actually use him to solve the Foreman's Children quest? Oh, yes, I did. But I had a comment about the Foreman's Children, which is the Foreman wants to have children. And the children, you know, mini AI robots keep dying. And the blue tide response to one of them is like, they're not even alive. He's a machine. It's like, he's like a sentient machine. I mean, there's so many weird things going on in this world. That doesn't seem like a very blue tide answer. Surely, if you're very analytical and logical, the idea of a sentient machine should not be too unusual. You know, could you really argue... I mean, there's lots of machine intelligence. There's lots of machine species. It looks like, like, so, like one of the previous worlds, like in the ninth world state sense, was like a machine civilization. So it seems really odd that one of the answers is about it's not alive. It's a machine. It's like uh, I would say it's alive. As a not, nitpick again. Sorry, it's not, it's not alive. It's a machine. What? You unenlightened swine. Skynet's not going to be very happy with you. Well, Skynet, Skynet's a machine. <laughs> I don't care. I'm definitely dead. <laughs> <laughs> so you won't be uploading your brain into the cloud anytime soon? Nope. Any bits to finish off with? I don't know. I mean, there's just so much stuff. There's so much stuff. There's so many other quests and stuff, but, you know, we could be talking about it for hours. We could be talking about it for hours and hours and hours, like the Tabat and, like, the probability machine. I can't remember what it's called, but the thing that's making all the you know, the the girl being born into the different bodies over and over again, and they all commit suicide or die at the age of 20, you know. There's the adversary and the the five psychics at the bar, one of which is the words of Kragai, but, you know, there's four others, and then one of them's a psychic projection, and, you know, there, there is actually quite a lot of interesting story or vignettes, as you called them, but does it hold together as a whole? Is it compelling? Are you enjoying it? Listening to us talk about it, it sounds like a really good game, if I'm honest. It sounds really cool. But the execution is just wonky. Yeah, it's really odd, but on paper, it sounds great. It sounds amazing. And mechanically, it's very cleverly designed. But... It just doesn't quite work somehow. There's like something missing. It's like it's very analytically clever, but has somehow failed to gel. It's not compelling. Talking about it is compelling, but sitting down to play it, it's not compelling at all. They don't gel, you're right. And it's quite formulaic in how the mechanics fit together. They don't overlap. There's no sense of overlapping in the mechanics. It's like, oh, this is your conversation. Oh, this is your effort. Oh, this is your sleep. Yes. They, they don't all come together into one game. It's it's smartly designed, but it has no heart in a sense. You know, they knew what they were trying to make. And they made it. They ticked all the boxes. And yet somehow it just doesn't hold together. There's no 
hook. It just doesn't. I mean, maybe we're being unfair, but we. I mean, we haven't finished it yet. Could be amazing still. But what it's taken? It's taken me about fifteen hours. So to finish Saga's Cliffs for me, it took about fifteen hours. Did you complete all the quests? I think I did. Okay. I completed all the ones that I found anyway. I didn't leave any unresolved when I left Saga's Cliffs. Well, I left Oom's quest unresolved, but that one I think can't be completed until later. So I left the tavern. I went to the tavern and there were, I think, four quests I left. I just left them. So you never resolved the one with the ghost woman? Nope. Or the adversary? Nope. Oh, okay. I mean, I did, yeah, I did both of those. That's all I have. Fair enough. <laughs> well, anyway, as I said, it took me about 15 hours to do this section of the game. I think yours is similar-ish, Saga's Cliffs, 15 to 20 hours. Yeah. The whole game time on How Long to Beat is about 30 to 40 hours. So I think we're actually about halfway through it, turns out. So we're going to say for next time, finish the game, finish the game, or play as much of it as you want, but we will finish the game, which will probably be about another 15 to 20 hours. Is that it? We're done? Yeah, I think think that's it. Especially since they appear to be constructing a bathroom above this room. I have no idea if any of these sounds are going to come out on the recording, but there's been hammering... There's been drilling. There's been the sound of like pipes and flowing water and hissing steam. I have no idea what's going on today. This recording is about two hours long. I don't know how long the eventual podcast is going to be once I've cut out all of the random times we had to stop and listen to them construct a bathroom above us. But (laughs) it's been about two hours of elapsed time we've been recording. We were Lost Levels Club. We still are Lost Levels Club. Please rate and subscribe to us on iTunes. Please, please, please. You can find us on email. Mike.and.ting at lostlevels.club. On Twitter. At Lost Levels Club. On YouTube. And Twitch as Lost Levels Club. On Reddit. Slash R slash Lost Levels Club. Do we have anything else? Is that not enough? Is that not enough for you, Ting? Should I make a Slack and should I make a Trello as well? Discord. There is in fact a, there is yeah, in fact, Discord. There is in fact a Discord, though we're rarely on it. I'm more often on another Discord, which is actually linked from the Twitch page called Potato Streamers. That's a whole other story. Let's not go there right now. Yeah, just just catch Sir Mike on Twitch. You can ask him there. So, what are you grateful for? I'm grateful that I'm going on holiday again. <laughs> I actually booked another holiday. What are you doing? I'm going skiing. And? And so I'm flying back to the UK again. And <laughs> this podcast is probably going to be edited again. We're recording this podcast like a month in advance again. Yay. So Michael says bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>